Tonight I'd like to speak about the Buddha's life journey and what its relevance is for our own lives in these times, 2,600 years later. We can consider the Buddha's life on different levels. On the most obvious level, we can understand it as the life of a historical person you know, who lived in the 6th century BC, born into a noble family in Lumbini, what is now Nepal on the Nepali-Indian border. And from the various stories in the suttas and the discourses, and also from later historical records, we can actually piece together uh, the major life events of this historical person. But on another level, we can understand his life as a basic archetype of humanity. That is that archetype of the fully awakened mind. On this level, <coughs> the Buddha's life is not simply about his own particular uh, strivings and struggles or the realization of a particular individual. But we can also understand his life as an unfolding of a great mythological journey. And myth or mythological here doesn't mean unreal. It doesn't mean imaginary. Rather, when we look at the power of myth, we see that it connects individual experience with much greater universal principles. So some of you may be familiar with the writer and scholar Joseph Campbell, who was one of the great students of world myths. And he wrote a lot about it. And in his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, he uses the Buddha's life as an example of this great archetype of awakening. On this level, on this archetypal level, the Buddha's life can illuminate our own lives, you know, can illuminate our own aspirations, our own struggles, our own realizations. It's possible to find a deeper meaning in the particular experiences of our lives and a deeper purpose in the life choices that we make. It's actually possible to connect the Buddha's journey with our own. So Joseph Campbell calls the first stage on this unfolding journey the call to awakening, or the call to destiny. So this call happens when something occurs in our lives that makes us question how we're living, makes us question what our lives are about. When we realize that the conventional understandings of society <coughs> are no longer really fulfilling for us, Now, the conventional understanding that has such 
power and sway in the world revolves around two words. Revolves around the words to have. You know, we have possessions, we have relationships, we have a body, we have thoughts, we have emotions. The German psychoanalyst Eric Fromm, he summed this up, he said, I am what I have. You know, and it's worth reflecting on whether we find our own identity in what we have both internally and externally. Is that how we're relating to experience? The problem with this view of the world and living our lives based on this way of relating to the world is that because of the great truth of impermanence, there's nothing that we have or can have that we won't lose. People are born and then they die. Relationships form and then they change. Thoughts and mind states all come and go. All material things, material objects, all eventually decay and break up. And on the larger scale, whole cultures and civilizations you know, rise in ascendancy in power and then fade and disappear. We can certainly see this truth of change in all of our meditation experience. I hope at this point in the retreat, you have all experienced very vividly the first insight of insight meditation, which is that everything is changing. So it's very obvious you know, when we pay attention. And so anything we might have is always subject to loss. So in this world of having, in this world of possessing, whether it's external things or internal, that's the way we're relating to our internal experience, there's always a sense of unease, or maybe an underlying anxiety, or just a sense of incompleteness. You know, something is not quite fulfilling. So in the early life of the Bodhisattva, as you know, the Buddha was called before his enlightenment, his world of having was very strong. You know, he was born a prince, he had a loving family, he had and enjoyed all the pleasurable experience of the senses, he had been trained in and developed all the worldly skills and arts. You know, he had everything that the world values. So for the Bodhisattva, the call to destiny, the call to awakening, came when he began to question these values. And it's the same values that in our society, you know, which are so prevalent. They're the values of the world. But he began to question them and their ultimate relevance when he came face to face with the great truths of 
old age, of illness, of death. You know what in Buddhism they're often referred to as the heavenly messengers, messengers sent to awaken us. When he realized that these aspects of life are not unusual occurrences, this is the nature of life, of all life. And as we've spoken before, it's that realization of seeing these aspects of life and realizing that we are not exempt. It's not that they're happening just to other people. This is part of what it means to be alive. So the Bodhisattva reflected, and I think this would be a worthwhile reflection for all of us. He said, why should I, being subject to decay and death, keep seeking those things? which are subject to decay and death. Is there something beyond this? Can I realize the deathless? We might very well have these same questions in our lives. And I'm sure you did because it's part of what brought you here. You know, the questions, what am I doing with my life? What choices am I making? In this world of change, of impermanence, what is genuinely of value? Now what's interesting about these questions is that many people have them. Now these these are not sort of hidden esoteric questions. These are the basic questions of life. What is it about? What is of value? So many people have these questions, they'll arise in the mind, but for many people, we quickly forget them, you know, because we get caught up and carried along just in the busyness of our lives. So these thoughts may come, these questions may come, and then again they're submerged in just the busyness of all our activities. It's worth reflecting that for each one of us here, we, each one of us has had some call to awakening. Something happened in all of our lives that brought us here. You know, and as we mentioned before, this is a significant commitment of time, of energy, of resources, of perseverance, So something in our lives has been uh, the motivating force for us being together here. For some people, you know, this call to destiny might be some kind of real suffering in our lives, maybe some traumatic experience. For others, the call to awakening may come just out of interest of, of wanting to understand in a deeper way, or in some combination of these things. When I look back on my own early life, I can see so clearly what brought me to the path. You know, when I was just 11, 12, 13, 
there were a series of deaths in my family. My father died when I was young, and grandfather who lived with us died, and a young cousin died, all within you know, a year or two. And even though I didn't have any philosophic framework for understanding it, the experience of it was so powerful. Just, you know, there's somebody there, and then they're not there. You know, and so what, what is that all about? And later, as a student in college, I spent one summer just traveling alone in Europe. And I was seeking something. I went, you know, just traveling, trying to find something. I didn't even know what I was looking for, but there was some urge that was seeking. And then I remember this is, uh, <laughs> the image is still so clear in my mind. I was sitting in a cafe in Greece, just by myself, and I had this sudden realization. It was a transforming realization that wherever I went, my mind went with me. <laughs> and it was revelatory. <laughs> and John Kabat-Zinn, as you might know, the, the title of his book really expresses it. Wherever you go, there you are. But it was like a wake-up call, you know, because I had been looking externally. You know, oh, if I go here, I go there, and maybe I'll understand something. But to see that wherever I went, there was my mind. So that was the beginning of understanding that the real journey is looking inward. That right? is learning to look into the mind rather than looking out through it. It's helpful, especially in this context, to spend a little time reflecting on your own early seeds you know, of understanding. What was, for each one of you, what was your call to destiny? What, what experiences in life began to wake you up to other possibilities? It's helpful to reconnect with this because it provides and it rekindles or reawakens that inspiration, its source of inspiration, which actually brought us all here. You know, as <coughs> you well know by now, this path of practice is not a bliss trip. <laughs> Has anyone not understood that yet? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, there are many struggles along the way as we turn inward and we really are investigating and exploring the nature of our minds, our hearts, our bodies. There are lots of struggles and lots of difficulties and lots of challenges. But if we reflect a bit on our call to destiny, what <coughs> motivated us, it helps us remember that what we're going through <coughs> in our meditation practice is part of a much larger journey. You know, it really has much greater significance than the particular struggle of the moment. So the second stage on this journey, Joseph Campbell called uh, the Great Renunciation. 
We can understand this in different ways, but most basically, in order for us to awaken to often the hidden possibilities of our lives, we need to weaken our attachments to all our habitual ways of seeing, of understanding, of relating. Now, because for most of us, we're caught up <coughs> just in the habit pattern of our conditioning. Conditionings of understanding, conditionings of perception. And it takes a renunciation, a willingness to let go of the conventional ways of understanding things in order to open up to what may be other possibilities. There's a wonderful poem <coughs> by the <coughs> Arab-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye. Uh, her mother uh, was an American from Missouri. Her father was Palestinian. And she spent a lot of her teenage years uh, in Ramallah, in now uh, Palestine, uh, in Jerusalem. And so she really absorbed two cultures. This is a great poem. It's called The Art of Disappearing. And it really suggests one aspect of uh, what might be worth renouncing. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. <laughs> Someone telling you in a loud voice, they once wrote a poem, greasy sausage balls on a paper plate, then reply. If they say we should get together, say why. <laughs> it's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project that will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. <laughs> when someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at the door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf, knowing you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. You know, and it's just, it's both humorous, but also uh, pointed. You know, what do we decide to do with our time? Uh, and often it is renunciation of just the old habits that keep us so busy in our lives. When we do take the time, as you're doing here, and a significant amount of time, we begin to see that things are not always what they seem. There are a lot of hidden understandings, hidden truths that are revealed. And there are striking examples of this in science. So I read some time ago uh, when they sent the, the Hubble telescope into space, you know, and it revealed so much. So there was one part of the sky where the 
astronomers thought nothing much was happening. And then they sent the, teles- the Hubble telescope up and they discovered hundreds of millions of galaxies where they thought, oh, there's not much there. <laughs> and there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe, each one of which has hundreds of billions of stars. Just recently, I went to the planetarium in New York. You know, it's this, you see this great space, you're on a journey through space, you know, and watching the big dome. It is so incredible and so awe-inspiring, the vastness of what's out there. You know, hundreds of billions of galaxies. And then I just read, that the number of H2O water molecules in 10 drops of water, and it said not even big drops, (laughs) in 10 drops of water, the number of H2O molecules is greater than the number of stars in the universe. (laughs) It's just, do you think there's some things we're not seeing? And what's so amazing about this whole journey, it's like (coughs) as vast as it is, you know, in in outer space, (laughs) or we can get down to the molecular atomic level. And as we look into our mind, we begin to appreciate the same vastness of the mind and all it contains on so many levels. There is so much to discover. But it takes that renunciation of what is familiar, of not holding on just to our usual way of perception, of developing the tools. And a lot of what we're doing here is just developing the tools that allow us to investigate, to allow us to send send in the inner Hubble telescope. Alfred North Whitehead, (coughs) who was an English mathematician and philosopher, he said, it takes a very unusual mind to undertake an analysis of the obvious. So you all have quite unusual minds because what we're doing, and analyze here does not mean particularly intellectually, but really what we're doing is analyzing or investigating or exploring the obvious. What is more obvious than our own experience of the body, our own experience of the mind? You know, this investigation of a breath, of a thought, of an emotion, of all the elements of the body, it's all right here. This is not, we don't have to go digging to experience this, but can we begin to see and understand free of a lot of our preconceptions about the nature of it all. So we're really taking a fresh look at what Suzuki Roshi called the beginner's mind. 
we begin to see, and, and I'm sure you have already discovered a lot of this, we begin to see that the body is not as solid as we might have thought it to be. That it's really an energy field. I hope you've noticed by now that our thoughts are not always true. <laughs> Just because we're thinking them <laughs> uh, does not have anything to do with their truth value. Although not many people realize that. You know, and can we begin to see that all the emotions that we often, in our conventional way of perceiving, so personalize, you know, I'm angry and I'm sad and I'm afraid and I'm loving and I'm this and I'm that. The emotions we personalize so easily, but through this investigation, through the renunciation of this habit <coughs> pattern of perception, we begin to see that all of the emotions that arise are aspects of nature rather than aspects of self. So we begin to see them in a very different light and relate to them in a very different way. So the great renunciation, this stage on the journey, is not only letting go or renouncing you know, our fixed notions of how things are, of things being a certain way, it's also renouncing that basic paradigm of to have as being you know, the framework for understanding our experience and relating to the world. We begin to see very directly through this inner exploration that wholesome qualities in the heart and the mind wholesome qualities of generosity, of love, of wisdom, of understanding, are a much greater source of happiness than anything we might have, you know, and are attempting to hold on to. So in meditation practice, we are actually practicing renunciation, and we need to practice this renunciation every time we let go of mind states that are causing suffering. And it's interesting just to watch in our experience how often we're conditioned in one way or another to hold on to states of suffering. You know, why is that? It doesn't make sense. And yet, for whatever reason, we've all been conditioned, at least at times, to do exactly that. Now it's a great renunciation. We're practicing the stage when we let go of our attachment and our identification with all the afflictive emotions. So for the Bodhisattva, the great renunciation happened when, at the age of 29, he left the palace, he left his family, he left everything he was familiar with. You know, he went off and studied with different teachers, he practiced all of those intense ascetic disciplines for six years, really mortifying, torturing the body. Until after six years of that, realizing that that was not the way to freedom. So he then took nourishment 
and prepared himself for the third great event in this mythological or archetypal journey of awakening. Joseph Campbell calls this third stage the great struggle. So the Bodhisattva, on the eve of his enlightenment, sat down under the Bodhi tree in what is now Bodh Gaya, resolved to sit there and not to get up until he had achieved full realization. So just as a little side note on virya, imagine coming into the hall, I'm not going to get up until full awakening. (laughs) Fortunately for him, it happened that night. (laughs) But but he had to go through the great struggle under the tree. And it's said that as he sat down, he was immediately assailed by all the forces of Mara. And Mara is the embodiment of delusion and ignorance. All the forces of desire and fear and doubt appeared in his mind. And Joseph Campbell describes this in his book, Here with a Thousand Faces, in very mytho-poetic language. So I just want to read Campbell's description of the Bodhisattva sitting under the tree the night of his awakening. It's a little bit long, but it has, it has some uh, powerful imagery. So he placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree and straight away was approached by Kama Mara, the god of desire and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant, carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 to the right, 12 to the left, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the world. There's Mara with his armies extending infinitely in all directions. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder, and flame, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers by the power of Gotama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed the forces of desire and lust, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting there, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. And she did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. Oh. (laughs) It was a big event. (laughs) 
But this is not so far from our own experience. Every time we sit, every time we're mindful, it's as if we are sitting under the Bodhi tree. And as you know, Mara does not hesitate to call up (laughs) its forces. We may not picture it in quite this vivid a way, but it's exactly the same forces at work that assail the Bodhisattva. You know, the forces of desire and fear and doubt. And so we want to see this, to see our own experience as part of this great journey. This, this is significant. It's not just, you know, our own little experience struggling with desire or struggling with sleepiness. It's as important and meaningful as what Joseph Campbell describes here. It's the same process of awakening. All of it is part of a much larger journey, a much larger unfolding. Thomas Merton, another great Christian Trappist monk and hermit, lived for a long time at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky and a wonderful writer and poet and so he wrote, and and he was a he was um, really a great seeker of the truth and made some very important connections with buddhism uh, later in his life but in describing his own great struggle this this third stage of the journey he said prayer and love are learned in the hour where prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. You know, so it's in the times of the greatest difficulty when we feel the practice is impossible and our heart is just totally shut down. Those are the times, if we can stay with it, that's where the learning takes place. So this is really the significance of what I talked about a few not, a few weeks ago, the significance of courageous effort. That's what virya means. It's the willingness in the appropriate way, in the appropriate time, to open to it all. You know, the courage to simply be present, to open to new possibilities beyond our conventional habits and comforts. I want to read something, it's just a few lines I came across from the great African-American poet Maya Angelou. She said, courage is the most of all the virtues because without courage you cannot practice any other virtue consistently. You can be anything erratically, kind, true, generous, fair, merciful, just, any of those things occasionally, but to be that thing time after time demands that you have courage. And so this quality, I think, of just reflecting on it and strengthening it and nourishing it is really what what makes possible uh, this whole path. Nelson Mandela, he, he captured this, you know, so succinctly. He said, 
it always seems impossible until it's done. You know, and so we're in the process of the doing. It may seem impossible at times, but actually many people have walked on this journey. So there's the call to awakening, that which starts us on the path. There's the great renunciation, which is the willingness to let go of our habitual ways of viewing the world, so that we can see from different perspectives, open to different understandings. There's, this, there's the great struggle, where we come face to face with all the forces of Mara, of delusion, you know, and how they manifest in our own lives, our own practice. And the last stage of this great archetypal journey is called the Great Awakening. And for the Bodhisattva, this happened as he sat under the Bodhi tree on the night of his enlightenment. And he described, and this we find in the discourses in the suttas, he described what happened that night after he vanquished Mara. And the line in what I read from Joseph Campbell, the line that I really love is, and can, uh, it's just a great inspiration to me in the practice, in dealing with the difficulties, where uh, Campbell describes the Bodhisattva in the face of Mara attacking, where he says, and the mind of the great being was not moved. And it's, that's so powerful. You know, and so can we uh, at least uh, approach that at times, even for a few moments, you know, in the face of difficulty, and the mind of us perhaps not so great beings, <laughs> was not moved. You know, it's, it's powerful. So after he vanquished Mara, you know, and then he spent the, what are called the three watches or the three parts of the night exploring different aspects of experience. So it's said that in the first part of the night, his mind could see into the endless progression of his past lives. He saw just how insubstantial and endless, you know, birth and death and birth and death and birth and death. And even if we can see into our past lives and perhaps not even believe in past lives, it doesn't really matter because we can reflect on the insubstantiality of our own past experience in this life. Just thinking back, you know, for all the experiences we've had, endless, countless kinds of experiences, where are they now? You know, and so we really begin to get a sense of the ephemeral nature of everything we took to be so real and so solid and so important. So in the second watch of the night, uh, the Bodhisattva saw into and explored the law of karma, that our mind states condition how we experience the world. Are we cultivating mind states that create suffering? 
for ourselves and others. You know, and it's so obvious when we look. You know, what is the karmic result in our own minds? What is the karmic result of greed? What does that do to the mind? What does hatred do to the mind? You know, what does generosity, what does love do to the mind? We can see this so directly. It's not just, you know, some Buddhist philosophical theory. We can observe this truth of karma, of cause and effect, that mind states bring about a result within ourselves, independent of whatever effect it has in the world. And we can track that, we can see that, if we're paying attention. It said that (coughs) what most moved the bodhisattva, you know, to spend those endless lifetimes perfecting the qualities of the Buddha, you know, the, the perseverance and the energy, you know, over such long periods of time to become a Buddha, a fully awakened being. It said that it was the compassion of seeing beings wanting happiness, looking for happiness, and yet out of ignorance doing the very things that cause suffering. And we can see this in our own lives. When we really take an honest look at ourselves, I mean, often we do a lot of really good things, but often we just find ourselves out of a desire for happiness, doing the very thing that is the cause of suffering. out Out of ignorance, out of delusion. And so the Buddha, in seeing this, he was moved to compassion. Shanti Deva, who was an eighth, eighth century Indian uh, adept and scholar, and he, he wrote uh, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is a beautiful book describing the path of a bodhisattva. And it's one of the great inspirations for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So Shantideva expressed this tendency that we all have. He said, we shrink from suffering, but love its causes. (laughs) And can we see that in our lives? None of us want to suffer, but somehow we love, you know, in some ignorant way, the very things that cause suffering. So this is all part of what we're exploring here. This is, this is this great investigation of our own hearts and minds so that we actually see what's going on. We see the cause and effect. You know, we see what leads to suffering. We see what leads to happiness and peace. But it takes a very strong um, commitment and clarity and honesty to look into our own motivations. To really examine what are the motivations behind all kinds of actions that we do. And it can be difficult because the motivations are often um, not clear. You know, they can be quite hidden or they can be confused or they can be mixed. There can be a series of conflicting ones. The one story which many of you have heard, it's 
one of my favorite illustrations of this. Uh, I was on retreat and I was reading some uh, you know, Buddhist text and I came across a story and I thought this story would really be uh, good for my colleague Sharon Salzberg who was writing a book and thought that this would be a good story. And you've probably gathered by now that for you know, Dharma talks, a good story is gold. So we really, you know, we're like story vultures. <laughs> so I came across this story and I thought, oh, that'll be really good for Sharon's book. And the very next thought was, no, I'm going to keep it for myself. <laughs> and it was amazing. It was like instant. <laughs> and right after that, no, no, that's just being selfish. I'll give her the story. But I'll tell her what's been going through my mind so she'll feel a little indebted. <laughs> and it just went, you know, it went on and on. So there was this whole train of thoughts. And at a certain point I was just asking, I was asking myself, oh, in, this whole, in this whole little train, where actually is a moment of you know, wisdom and purity? And I saw that there was one. And it was in the very first moment, you know, the, the first impulse. And then it got all mixed up with other motivations. But what was interesting about that was first just seeing it. You know, I, because I was on retreat, it was super clear what had just happened. And realizing that even though we may all go through you know, a lot of mixed motivations behind some of our actions, we can always go back to that moment you know, where it was really genuinely pure, really a moment of generosity. So even if we've gone through a whole process of seeing other motivations, we can always come back to that moment of purity. But we need to be paying attention to see all this. You know, because as you know, and as you've seen now for weeks, the mind is so, it's just changing so rapidly and thoughts coming and going so quickly. We need, and this is what you're doing, is developing the skill you know, of, of a certain degree of calm, of steadiness, of ability to track what it is that's actually happening. So in the first watch of the night, the Buddha looked back into his past lives and just saw the endless emptiness of the unfolding. In the second part of the night, he understood this law of cause and effect and how our mind states create our experience of happiness or suffering. And in the third part of the night, the third watch of the night, it said that his mind opened to the most profound truths of his awakening, his understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the law of dependent origination, of how suffering is created, the causes of it, and how we can be free. So I think in, in knowing this, and knowing that this is part of the stage of the great awakening, the great realization, in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, in times of struggle, can we bring this perspective that those are exactly the times of understanding the Four Noble Truths? Right when we're in the middle of some suffering, 
at that point, the Four Noble Truths are not theoretical. You know, it's what the Buddha is describing. Okay, this is a situation of some suffering. What is it? What are its causes? You know, what are we holding on to? What are we pushing away? What are we not seeing? You know, and seeing that there is an end to the suffering if we can let go of the causes and there's a path to the end. So right in the middle of the difficulties, this is where the greatest learning can happen. And then it said, just as at daybreak, you know, when Buddha first glimpsed uh, the morning star in the sky, the bodhisattva in that moment, his heart, his mind opened to full awakening, to full enlightenment. And he, he later recalled that the first uh, verse that came to his mind at that time, the last few lines of it, it said, My, this is the Bodhisattva, is now the Buddha, you know, his own uh, reflection. Mind has attained unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. So it's very clear, you know, the, the culmination of the path. This is the culmination of the journey that we're all on. So the Buddha was awakened at 35, age 35. He spent seven weeks just hanging out around the Bodhi tree, contemplating different aspects of the awakening. And then he spent the next 45 years wandering northern India uh, teaching. You know, and helping helping beings. So we all start, each one of us starts with our individual call to awakening. We've all had that because whether it was one event or a series of events, it's what brought us all here. And it's worth just reflecting a bit on that. We are all involved in the great renunciation of learning to see, say with beginner's mind, to come out of the prison of our preconceptions. We all go through the great struggle of facing all the forces of Mara in our minds. And this is universal. It was the same for the Bodhisattva as it is for us. So this, this is the journey, this is this great archetypal mythological journey unfolding in our own lives, in our own practice. And we gradually awaken, you know, and it's step by step, to a sense of greater freedom in our lives. And as we practice, we also begin to realize that we're not doing this for ourselves alone. Because what arises quite naturally in the course of practice is what, is, it's really a rare flower of what in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. And that is the aspiration of the motivation that our practice in our lives be for the benefit, the welfare of all. Well, this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful seed to water. Now this this uh, 
mind space, heart space of bodhicitta. May my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all. We plant that in our mind stream, in our heart stream, not as some grandiose idea, but just as a very small seed. We need a lot of humility with this. This is a, this is a vast notion. And just think what it would mean to fully embody that aspiration. It's, this is vast. So we just plant the small seed of it, you know, and we water it, and we nurture it. And the Buddha was very explicit about this <coughs> soon after he began teaching, and he had the first, first 60 disciples who became fully enlightened, fully awakened, arhants. He said, go forth for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good benefit and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent in the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duty. So the Buddha was uh, just understood so profoundly that we undertake this work not only for ourselves, but we can undertake it with this aspiration to be of benefit to all. It's really important, I think, to uh, understand this whole notion of bodhicitta, this aspiration, you know, of compassion. To really undertake it and to connect with it just in very simple, humble ways. So that we don't set up an ideal and then berate ourselves for not living up to it. You know, it's just, we just plant the seed, we water it. Henry David Thoreau, the great writer and naturalist, he wrote, nothing will grow where no seed has been, but convince me you have a seed there and I'm prepared to expect wonders. And I love that, because just out of a tiny little seed, wondrous things happen. And so in our practice, we're just planting seeds and we water the seeds. You know, and then our whole lives gradually and slowly begin to manifest this quality of bodhicitta, of greater kindness, of greater compassion. So at the age of 80, you know, the Buddha became ill and he lay down between two trees, which according to the myth, according to the legends, said to be flowering out of season, you know, in honor of the Buddha's passing. And his last words, and just, you know, all the disciples, the women and the men, nuns and monks and lay people were around him. So his very last words you know, are very uh, direct, very pointed. As you can imagine, he spent his whole life teaching and this is the last thing he said. 
And he said it to all of us. And so when you hear this, imagine, you know, it's really the Buddha's instruction to us. He said, with the light of perfect wisdom, dispel the clouds of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with heedfulness. So let's just sit heedfully for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.